Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Well, if you're our guest today, we're so glad you're here. If you're part of the family, we're so glad you're here too. We're excited to be uh, with you. We're in part number two of our series, as you can see, called Made for Mission. It was this August um, that Lisa and I celebrated our 13th anniversary. We've been married for 13 years. Every anniversary we've had has been here. So I love that about uh, our life here in Pickerington. And Lisa is amazing. Amen? Okay. All right. Good. Amen. Good. She really is, I mean this, the incarnation of God's grace to me. She's been so good to me. Every good thing that I have, every good thing that I could ever become is, has its roots in her love for me, and I appreciate that so much. But there's one area in our marriage that causes me incredible amounts of pain and suffering, unbelievable amounts of pain and suffering. I'm just going to air it out today for you, okay? And here's how it goes. About after about every 10 days or so in our life... Um, we enter into what I call cupboard famine. You, you know, in your house, when you just have famine in your cupboards after about 10 days. And we have known that we needed to go to the store for about four days, and we've talked about it every day, but you just get to about 6.30, 7 o'clock at night, and it's winding down, and the last thing either of us want to do is drive to Kroger or Meyer. And even ClickList at Kroger feels like wearisome to get on the internet and like click, yes, I want you to give me this when I pull up to the store. So we just fatigue and about the 10th day Lisa will call me and I'll be at the office and we'll do the typical conversation which is what do you want to eat what do we got do you want me to grab something that's usually how it goes and you might be thinking at this point is where my problem entered in it's not actually we've actually solved the deciding restaurant problem long ago we're pretty good at that if you want the secret to that you have to ask me later but we actually are pretty good at figuring out the restaurant but here's where the problem comes in Let's say, for instance, we settle on, let's just grab some Max and Irma's to go, and I'll just bring it home from the office, and we'll just eat it, and then we'll go to the store tomorrow, maybe. Um, usually what happens, here's how it goes. I'll say, okay, you know, the kids want this, I'll get this. What would you like? And she goes, I don't care, just get me something. Okay, this is going to go into your mouth and into your stomach. What would you like? I, I don't know, just... just Give me something. You know, I know that she's saying that because she's probably got three kids pulling on, uh, you know, different parts of her body to grab her attention. But either way, what's, what, in that moment, when she says, just get me something, I don't care, just, just figure it out, like my palms get sweaty, you know, I get like a little bit nervous. Maybe or maybe not my frustration rises. I'll let you try to figure that one out. And my brain begins to malfunction. It just like, it doesn't work. And then, what do you want? What do you want? Okay. And what happens is the reason that is a problem is because as a mission-oriented person, I now have a task. You know, domesticated, manly man, hunter-gatherer, go get food for family at a restaurant. Okay, I can do that task. But what's my problem in that moment? My problem is this. My task isn't clear. What I want is not just a task to do, but what I want is clarity of how to do the task well. And if I don't know that information of what she would like me to get her, I can't know if I've done my task right or if I've done my task well. And although I have a mission, I don't know how to execute that mission. And it's frustrating. 
But this problem is not isolated just to husbands or even just to marriage. It's everywhere. Have any of you ever had an experience with maybe a job where you had mixed understanding or lack of clarity from a boss about what exactly they want you to do, and maybe they've given you assignment they want you to get done, but you don't know exactly how to do that or or when they want it done. That lack of clarity can be frustrating. Or maybe you've been a student and a teacher has an assignment that's kind of fuzzy and hazy. You, You don't know what the expectations are, and that teacher doesn't really explain what those expectations are. It's frustrating. It's difficult because as humans, we are designed by our Creator to operate with a mission. But we will get frustrated if we don't know what that mission exactly is. Well, we started our series last week learning about the fact that we as creative beings are made to live in a mission. We learned, first of all, that our mission is a mission that is supposed to be received from somebody greater than us that we adore, respect, and honor. And God has given us that mission. We learned last week that our overarching mission in life is to bring glory to God. All created things, especially human beings, were designed by God to bring honor and glory and majesty to His name. That's what you were designed to do. But it's at this point now that you might feel a little bit of the same frustration that I feel with the restaurant problem, when is, okay, how do you actually bring Glory to God. How do you do that? How can we do that? Well, we've got to have some clarity. And at this point, we're going to again turn to Jesus. And Jesus worded this prayer in John chapter 17 that shows us the kind of clarity he had. He said in John 17, I have glorified you, Father, by doing the work you gave me to do. You see, Jesus had incredible clarity about the work that God was going to, God gave him to do. He knew exactly what he needed to do. He was understanding of the mission. He understood the purpose. And he understood the task at hand of what he had to do. Jesus accomplished his mission because he was absolutely clear about what he was called to do. Well, what about us? As a follower of Jesus Christ, as a Christian, what have you been called to do? Now, we'll see over the course of the next few weeks that this at times will take on different variations that we as members of one body, but different members take on different roles, different tasks, different things. But there is a central task, a central thing that every single member of this body has been called to do. And that's what our text told us. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, all authority has been given to me in heaven And on earth, he says, go make disciples. Go make disciples. And he was talking to us as disciples. Go make disciples. Man, I love how clear this text is. It's it's really hard to get confused about what he's saying. Go make disciples. Jesus gives us here in this moment clarity on every level that we need it. And it starts with this. It starts with clarity on where. Where? Where are we supposed to make disciples? Well, it might seem strange, but he says this. He says, go. Go. Now, go is a word that means to move from where you currently are to someplace different. If I give the command, go to you. That means that the present place that you're in needs to change. You need to move to somewhere else. 
And that's exactly what Jesus is calling for them to do. He's saying, I want you to go make disciples. And this is difficult for us. It's difficult for humans in general, partly probably because we like comfort. As humans, we like to be comfortable. And so the call to go can make us uncomfortable. We also like things to be familiar. We like to recognize things. And the command to go is disruptive to that which is familiar. You see, when he calls us to move from what we currently are to something different, there are two ways that that really works itself out. It starts, first of all, with different people. In this moment, Jesus is talking to 11 people, 11 disciples. And in just a few short weeks, they're going to add a 12th disciple to that. They're going to cast lots, and there's going to be a 12th person who was not part of their core group from the beginning. The group changed, didn't it? And then we're going to find them together in a room of about 120 people on the day of Pentecost, where this group is now larger. And in that moment, when Peter and the rest of the apostles begin to preach the gospel, we see that then the Lord adds to the body about 3,000 new and different people. Their group changed. They went from 11 to 12, 120, and now there's 3,120, if it's exact, that are now part of this group, and it's totally different. There are different people from different places, different backgrounds, different classes, different education, different trades. There are now people from all over the world, part of this group, there in Jerusalem, and they're beginning to spend time together as brothers and sisters of Christ. And this theme will continue through the rest of the book of Acts, and it has continued for all of the history of the world up until this point today. This group in this room today is different than the group that was here five years ago and ten years ago. Many of you in this room were not here ten years ago. In fact, I, we still keep in touch with some people that have left this place that were here ten years ago, and we have lovingly, gladly welcomed people who weren't here who are now here. This group is different. And we have to become comfortable with the reality that it's always going to be continually, hopefully, receiving new people. The command to go means that there will be different people. But it doesn't just mean different people. It also means different places. Pickerington is not the only place where disciples are called to be made. In fact, Jerusalem was the place that it all started. And through a series of sacrifices and costly effort by brothers and sisters in Christ... The message of the gospel has come to the place where we now exist. It didn't start here. Boy, I just wonder sometimes as I look out week after week and preach here, if there are people in this room right now that God is calling to go to a different place to reach disciples. Maybe a different city. Maybe a different state. Maybe a different country. I just wonder if God is calling some of us who are maybe comfortable to go make disciples in places that are not right here. Maybe on a short-term trip, maybe God wants you to go into a place where you have never been to go and bring the gospel and kind of shake up that culture with a different culture where we are from to teach the gospel. Maybe he's calling you to think about it long-term. But I want to press on you to think, is God calling somebody to go make disciples somewhere? But you see, this passage doesn't just give us clarity on where we make disciples, that they're going to be different people in different places. It also gives us clarity on exactly what to do. You see, he says, I want you to go and make disciples. Make a disciple. Now, what does that mean? 
You see, a disciple is a distinct kind of relationship. It is a particular kind of relationship to a master. That's what he wants us to make. A disciple, the word disciple was borrowed from vocational language, from career language, and the time in which Jesus was speaking. And it means to train. It means to get somebody who is a learner of you and train them in your profession. But it was way different than what we understand today. We would probably use the word apprentice for the word disciple in our culture today. I want you to apprentice me, so that means you're going to spend time with me and you're going to work in the field and I'm going to teach you what I do and how I do it. But in this time in which Jesus was writing, a disciple was more than just um, an extended internship or an apprenticeship. You see, the disciple would live with the, learn, the, the master, would dress like the master, would eat the same diet as the master, would follow the master wherever that master went to learn every aspect of that master's life so that that disciple would then become a representative of that master. That's how the master multiplied himself and his influence in his work in that day. He would get a disciple. You see, what Jesus is saying is, I want you to make disciples. And a disciple of Jesus is someone who learns from Jesus to become like Jesus. And herein, we have a problem. The American church has a serious problem with the idea of discipleship. Let me illustrate this. There was a preacher who was preaching. I won't do this exercise here, but you'll get the impact of it. A preacher was preaching to a crowd of believers, and he asked them, he said, okay, all of you, with great humility but great conviction and confidence, how many of you would be convinced that you are a disciple of Jesus Christ? And he said it that way, and, you know, 50% of the hands kind of sheepishly raised their hands. They felt, I, I think I am. And they said, okay, how many of you are confident that you are a Christian? How many are confident? And the whole room raised their hand. And therein is the problem. They're not different. Being a Christian is not different than being a disciple. They're not levels of commitment. They're not distinctions. A Christian is a disciple. A disciple is a Christian. Do you know the word Christian is only used twice in the New Testament? And disciple is 243 times. Disciple, learner follower, all in, life. The gospel sort of lays out three ways in which people relate to Jesus. We see stories all the time of people relating to Jesus, and there's broadly based about three categories. The first one is stranger. This would be like Pilate. Pilate didn't know who Jesus was. He didn't understand it. He missed the point of who Jesus was. It would be like the Pharisees who knew who Jesus, they saw him, but they didn't connect. They didn't understand who he was. They were strangers, and there are strangers today. Maybe some of you here might be here. Maybe you have wondered if you're a Christian or not, but you might be a stranger when it comes to who Jesus is. The second type of people were admirers. This would be like those on the Sermon on the Mount. When the disciples were close to Jesus and a huge crowd gathered around him and Jesus began to preach. And at the end of it, the the crowd said, wow, this guy teaches like nobody else we've ever heard. They admired him. And then there are disciples. The ones who would leave businesses. Who would leave work. Who would leave relationships. And who would radically commit themselves to following Jesus. Let me try to illustrate it this way. You remember in 2008, how many of you remember back to 2008, the Summer Olympics, Michael Phelps. Do you remember how exciting that was? 
I know it's like forever ago, right? But in 2008, Michael Phelps was going to be uh, was going to break Mark Spitz's record for most gold medals in one Summer Olympics. He was going to get eight, and it was exciting. I remember staying up late and watching some of it and DVRing things. And Michael Phelps, he actually did it. And you remember that relay race where he wasn't the anchor leg and he's standing on the side, and his gold is hanging in the balance. And by like one one hundredth of a second, the t- the fingernail touches the board, and they win. And he just goes crazy because he got the gold. It was so exciting. Man, I was so into it. I watched it. I DVR'd it. I talked about it. I probably posted on social media about it. I admired Michael Phelps. But you know what I didn't do in 2008? Swim. (laughs) Ask Lisa. Her kids, pool, great. You guys have a good time. I didn't swim. You know what I didn't do? I didn't change my diet. I didn't learn a new stroke on how to swim. But somewhere... In the world, in 2008, in the summer, a little boy or a little girl was watching Michael Phelps. And when they saw what Michael Phelps did, that little boy or that little girl started swimming every day. Would wake up early probably and go to a pool before school. Changed their diet. Started lifting weights. Got a coach and learned different strokes. And practiced every day because they didn't want to just admire Michael Phelps. They wanted to be Michael Phelps. Do you see the difference? They became a disciple. You see, that third group of people, not just admirers or strangers, but disciples, look at Jesus and say, who you are is what I want. The cleansing, the forgiveness, the release from worry or shame or deceived desires, that's what I want. Disciples say, I would rather have this man and give up everything in the world then have everything in the world and lose this man. That's what a disciple says. And Jesus was constantly calling people to move from admirer to disciple. And the shift from admirer to disciple always has a cost. Remember Nicodemus came at night to Jesus? He wanted to strike a deal with him. Saying, listen, I'm a teacher, you're a teacher, we get it. Can we just get along and we'll just keep moving forward? And Jesus says, nah, man, you got to come to the light you got to be born again. you got to start over. With me, I'm master. He says, this is going to cost you something, Nicodemus. And he eventually did. In fact, he was the one who went and got the lifeless body of Jesus off the cross and buried him. Finally, he came out to the light. Remember the rich young ruler came to Jesus, said, how do I have eternal life? And Jesus looked at him and he knew his riches, his wealth were standing in his way. He said, sell everything. Come follow me. And he walked away sad. People who think they are disciples but have paid no price and made no commitment to following Jesus are deceiving themselves and they have invented a fourth group of people that does not exist and that is users. People who want the gospel message to be a minimal requirement to get into heaven but have no cost to pay, no sacrifice, no commitment. Where are you? Stranger? Admirer? Disciple, or do you fall in the middle there and maybe just a user? You see, look in verse 16. When the 11 disciples went to Galilee, Jesus told them to go make disciples. Here's what Jesus is saying He is commanding them to replicate what they are. Do you see that? He's talking to disciples to go make disciples. You see, you will only be able to reproduce in Jesus Christ what you are. If you're a stranger, 
You'll continue to make strangers. If you are an admirer, you'll tell people Jesus should be admired. If you're a user, you'll convert people maybe to being a user. But if you're a disciple, you will make disciples. But Jesus also in this passage gives us clarity on how. He says, I want you to go and baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. I want you to teach them to observe all that I've commanded you. See, disciple making is a lifelong endeavor. It never stops. Everybody in this room is currently should be being discipled. You should be active in your discipleship, growing to become more and more like Jesus Christ, and at the same time, making other disciples. And it starts with helping lost people know Jesus. That's why he says baptism. Who Jesus is. What Jesus did. What stands in your way of connecting to Jesus. And how you actually do that. That's why he talks about baptism. Because baptism is both a death and a birth in the same moment. Baptism is the place where your old self, your old life dies. That which is broken in sin, that which is lost, that which is guilty, that which is ashamed, that which needs to die, dies in baptism. And when you are raised, you are raised to a new life, a born-again life in Jesus Christ. But that born-again life has to grow. And that's why discipleship is not just helping lost people know Jesus. It's also helping saved people become Jesus. Every one of us. You see, out of that new birth, we are called to grow up into maturity. And that maturity is seen in Jesus Christ. Every one of us. You see, friends, Jesus is the way to heaven. And Jesus' body is the church. But if all we tell people is you need to be baptized so that you, God will add you to the church and you can go to heaven, and we speak nothing of Jesus Christ... They miss the point that life in heaven is life with Jesus Christ. And they miss the point that the church is called to represent life on earth, or life here on earth, as life will be in heaven. We've got to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's what we've got to be making. And so as I began, I'll finish with this very simple thought. When you look at Jesus Christ, the man who he was, what he taught, how he lived, how he carried himself, what his priorities were, what his values were. As you look at his life, you've got to ask yourself, how are you relating with him? Are you a stranger? Can you right now begin to, real, begin to rattle off things about him, characteristics, qualities? Do you really know him? Or have you just by maybe osmosis floated into a religious body but don't really know Jesus? You might be a Christian but still a stranger. You've got to get to know him. Are you an admirer? Are you impressed with him? Are you in awe of him? Do you stand back and say what he did and who he was and who he is is impressive, but it brings to bear on your life no consequence? doesn't challenge you to change. When's the last time you said no to something so that you could say yes to a priority of Jesus Christ? When? Ask yourself. What does it cost you in time, in energy, in schedule, in commitment, in money? What does it cost you? Are you an admirer? Or are you a disciple? Saying who he is and what he's done for me, that's what I want at the cost of anything in this life. I'll take him. We won't make disciples until we ourselves become disciples of Jesus Christ. If you need to become one, let's do it now. Let's stand and sing.